Well, we've just read from the last chapter of the last gospel, the gospel of John. And John was probably not just the last gospel of the four gospels, but it was probably the last gospel to be written. And John wrote it late in life. He, read it, he wrote it as an old man, probably in his 70s, maybe even in his 80s. He wrote it after decades, after many, many years of faithful missionary work, of faithful pastoral ministry. And this is a gospel written by a man who had long abided in the love and in the life of Jesus. Now, you'll remember that John tells us at the Last Supper, as the disciples were reclining around the table, that he was reclining, the beloved disciple, he was reclining at Jesus' side. And when we hear that, we're reminded of what John tells us at the beginning of his gospel, when he says, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten who is at the side of the Father, he has made him known. And what we are reading in the Gospel of John is the Son of God who resides and abides in the life and the love of the Father, at the Father's side, making him known. But then as we come towards the end of the Gospel, there's John at the Last Supper. He is resting. He is abiding in the side of the Son. And so in John's Gospel, John is making known to us the Son. And in this very account that we've just read, He's making known to us the Son. This was the third time that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples after his resurrection. And if we're reading through John, we would have just read the purpose for his whole gospel. He tells us he's written these things, yes, to make him known to us, but for a purpose. Not just that we know about the Son of God, not just that we know about Jesus, but that we may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. Now that's true of this account too. He's written this so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him have life. So he's written this for faith, and he's written this for life. Now there is wonderful symbolism all through the Gospel of John. There's wonderful symbolism in this account itself. John's very careful the way he constructs his narratives, the way he reports things to us, especially the resurrection accounts. It's all kinds of imagery of new creation, all kinds of imagery that reminds us of the Garden of Eden, uh, reminds us of the first days of creation. And even as we look at this account, account, there's wonderful symbolism of the transition from night to daybreak. There's symbolism, there's uh, significance to the fact that the disciples are on the sea and Jesus is on the land. There's symbolism and significance to the nets and the fish and the bread. So we, could, we, could, we would be blessed if we considered the meaning, the significance of these things this morning. But that's what I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to consider that. I want to consider the, the personal implications of this account. Because there's rich symbolism here, but this is also a very familiar account. And here's what I mean by this. We, if we're reading through Scripture, we will have come to this account, yes, at the end of John's Gospel. So we have everything in John's Gospel before this, which helps us appreciate what's going on here. But John is the fourth Gospel. So we don't only come to this having read John. We've come to this having read Matthew and Mark and Luke. 
And to see this picture, to, to have in our mind's eye the disciples out on the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, fishing, and Jesus on the shore, and Jesus calling out to them from the shore. It's a very familiar account. We've heard lots about the Sea of Galilee as we read through the Gospels. We've heard lots about Jesus' ministry on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We've heard about fishing and about nets. We've heard about Jesus feeding people with bread and with fish. So it's familiar to us, having read the Gospels. But it's also familiar to the disciples themselves. They grew up in Galilee. They grew up on the Sea of Galilee. This is where they grew up. This is where they were raising their families. This is where Jesus first called them. This is where they had spent most of their time with Jesus. It was a familiar place to them. They were back home. And it was there in that familiar place that our Lord revealed himself to them after his resurrection. What I want us to consider this morning is how the same risen Lord Jesus Christ makes himself known to us where we are, in very familiar places, in the very places where we work, where we go to school, where we're raising our families, the very places where we gather together, where we worship as a church. In that very familiar place, that's where Christ meets us. Now, we have in this account, yes, the disciples are out fishing. They fished all night. They didn't catch anything. And our Lord comes, calls out to them from the shore, and he asks them a very simple question. Children, do you have any fish? And they give him the straight, direct answer, no. And then he tells them, cast your nets on the other side, on the right side. And then you will find some. And they do, and their nets are full of fish. As soon as this happens, John, the beloved disciple, he recognizes, it's the Lord. He says to Peter, it's the Lord. And then Peter throws on his outer garment. He casts himself into the sea, and he swims to the shore. And then the disciples follow him in the boat, dragging the fish. And we're told that when they came on land, when they set foot on the shore, the first thing that they see is a fire prepared. And they see fish cooking on that fire. And they see warm bread. And our Lord says to them, come and have breakfast. So it's a familiar account for them. It's a, and I want us to see it's familiar to us too. That our Lord meets us where we are. In the ordinary and routine affairs of our life. And he asks us the same question that he asked the, those disciples. He asked them, children, do you have any fish? And I want you to, to hear him asking you this morning, child, do you have anything? What do you have? Then when they arrive on the land, he invites them to come and have breakfast. He's prepared a meal for them, and he invites them to come and eat. And I want you to hear that invitation also this morning. He invites you to come and find rest, find refreshment in him. So first, he asked the disciples this question, do you have any fish? Now, they'd been fishing all night. They were tired, exhausted, hungry. Their nets are empty. And as, they, as the day is breaking, they hear this voice, this man from the shore. At first, they don't recognize him. And he calls out to them, children. Now, that's a word that uh, some of the older translations or kind of an older word that might be used to translate that is lads, 
hey, lads. It's very, it's very folksy, actually. Lads, boys, you know, how's it going out there, boys? Do you have any fish? Now, who's he talking to? John tells us in verse 2, who's there? There's seven, seven of the twelve. He tells us that Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, it's James and John, and two other of his disciples were together. Now just think about that list. It begins with Simon Peter and with Thomas. Those are the first two guys listed in this list of seven. One of them has just recently denied his Lord. Jesus at his trial. At his, at, at, his, at his darkest moment, Peter denied him. And then the other one, the next one on the list is Thomas. Thomas called the twin, Didymus. Well, he had just doubted his resurrection. So right there in that list, you have a denier, a one-time denier, and a one-time doubter. Well, our Lord calls out to them, children, do you have any fish? So it is for you, whatever your past you may be thinking about that this morning. Look what I've done in my past. Well, he called out to a denier. He called out to a doubter. He calls out to you, whatever your past. And then we have the last two on the list. They're not even named. Two others of his disciples. Now, that probably represents most of us, if not all of us. We're, we're other disciples. We're others. Unnamed. Anonymous. Now, you may feel like that. You know, who am I in the world? I'm nobody. I'm an anonymous. I'm unnamed. I'm one of the other disciples. But our Lord calls out to the other disciples. He calls out to you. You may feel unnamed. He knows your name. He calls out to you. And he asks them a simple question. Do you have any fish? Now, we might translate that question for us. Child, do you have anything? Do you have what you have been striving and working and struggling for? Do you have it? Now, some of you have come here this morning, and you, you may just be in a real sweet moment in life. You, you are just walking with the Lord. You know his presence. You know his love. But that's not everybody here. And our Lord says to you, do you have what you've been struggling for? Do you have what you've been striving for? What you've been struggling to become? What you've been struggling to overcome? Do you have it? Now, notice how the disciples answer. Simple. No. No, we don't. And so it is for you. If you've come here this morning and you're struggling and you're striving, and you don't have what you've been struggling for or striving for, our Lord asks you, child, do you have what you've been struggling for? And your answer must simply be, no. No, I don't. The disciples don't make excuses. They don't have some kind of preamble, some sort of explanation. They just simply say no, and so do we. Now, there's probably God's providence in these empty nets that the disciples have. They've toiled. They've come up with nothing. We can see God's hand of providence in that. God will do that at times. He'll empty our nets. And he does that because he's drawing us to himself, actually. He wants us to recognize our need. He's, he wants us to come to him, to find rest, find refreshment. Now he tells them, cast your nets on the other side, and you will find some. And they do so. 
And there's a large, a great quantity of fish. You know, the nets are overflowing with the fish, but they don't tear. And as soon as this happens, the disciple who Jesus loved, John, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. And then immediately, Peter throws on his outer garment, throws himself into the sea, and he starts to swim to the shore. Now, this has happened before. We read about it in Luke chapter 5. You remember, Jesus is teaching on the shore, and the disciples are there in their boats. Same scenario, they've been fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. You remember, Jesus gets in the boat with them, and he's teaching the people from the boat. And then he says, do you have any fish? Do you have anything? And Peter says, no, we were fishing all night. We have nothing. And our Lord says, good, just go out into the deep a bit. Cast your nets. So they say, okay, if you say so, we will. And they go out, and sure enough, their nets are full, and this time they break. And you remember how Peter responded at that when he saw those nets full of fish. He fell down before the Lord. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's a very different response this time. That time, he falls down. He says, depart from me, O Lord. I'm a sinful man. This time, when the same thing happens, and John says, it's the Lord, Peter throws himself in the sea. He can't get to Jesus fast enough. It's the exact opposite response. Now, the question is, what changed? Does Peter no longer see himself as a sinful man? Well, surely not. On the contrary, he's much more deeply aware of his sin. Well, does he no longer fear the Lord so that he doesn't shrink back? That's not the case either. In fact, I would argue that, no, no, Peter has truly now learned the fear of the Lord. Consider what we read in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 and then verse 7. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who could stand? Now that's Peter. He feels like I've just been marked that first time. I've just been marked. I'm a sinful man. Depart from me, O Lord. I can't stand. But the next verse. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The knowledge that God is a God who forgives sins causes us to fear him. And then he says, the psalmist says, For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Peter knows this. He's already met with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus has already said, Peace be with you, Peter, my peace I give you. Peter knows that with the Lord there is forgiveness of sins. Peter knows that with the Lord there is steadfast love. Peter knows that with the Lord there is plentiful redemption. That you may be feared. And because he knows the Lord's forgiveness and the Lord's love and the Lord's redemption, he fears him. And because he fears him, he runs to him. So the fear of the Lord is the opposite of what we usually think about of being afraid or being scared. When we're afraid, when we're scared, we shrink back. But when we truly fear the Lord, it draws us to him. We run to him as Peter ran to him. Now, there's a question for you this morning. You may have come here very aware that you are a sinful man, a sinful woman. 
But with the Lord, there is forgiveness. With the Lord, there is steadfast love. With the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. Don't fall down and say, depart from me, Lord. No, run to him. So Peter throws himself into the sea. The disciples follow him in the boat, dragging the nets. And then we read this in verse 9. When they got out on land, they set their feet on the shore. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And then verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. Now let's appreciate what's just happened here. John ends this account by saying this was the third time that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples after his resurrection. This is the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the beach who has made a fire and prepared this fish and this bread. Now Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has just died for sinners. He's just atoned for sin. He has just been raised from the dead. He has conquered death. He has conquered the devil. Now you would think that, what's next? Well, he's going to declare his victory over sin and death and the devil? This announcement of the salvation and the victory of Christ, it's got to go out to the nations. It's got to go out to the world. What's the plan? Let's go. Maybe we go to Rome. Go from Jerusalem, go to Rome. Let's get the message out there. But what is Jesus doing? He goes up to Galilee to prepare breakfast for his disciples on the beach. Now, this may be surprising, but it shouldn't surprise us. I don't know if we often think about the significance of Jesus' life before he was 30. But he was unknown before he was 30. That whole first 30 years of his life, very ordinary, very domestic. His life was not much different than yours. You know, he got up every morning, he made breakfast, he went to his father's shop, he worked. He spent time praying, playing with his family, spent time worshiping in the synagogue, making trips to the temple, to Jerusalem. A very typical, ordinary life of a Galilean Jew for 30 years. Jesus, after his resurrection, returns to that very ordinary, domestic life. And we can imagine that scene. Probably the night before, he had made preparation for the bread. You know, he, he, he was kneading it. It was rising overnight. That morning, he got up early. He may have got the fish himself fishing, or he went and bought fish from the market. Went to the beach. His disciples are out there working away. Jesus makes the fire. The bread is ready. He puts it on the rocks by the fire. It's baking. It's got the fish laid out. And then you can imagine the disciples and imagine the scene as they come to shore. You know, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're wet. 
And you can imagine the sounds, you know, the sound of the, the waves, they're lapping up on the shore. The sound of all those flesh, fish, they're flapping, they're flopping in the nets. You know, the sound of the fire, it's crackling. And then the, the smell, you know, the smell of the fish cooking, the smell of the bread, the warmth of the fire, the warmth of the bread. It's all very ordinary. It's all very domestic. It's all very much down to earth. Now, here's the significance. It tells us that our risen Lord Jesus meets us where we are and is at work and present among us in the very ordinary aspects of our life in the routine of our day-to-day life. John tells us, none of them asked, are you the Lord? They knew it was the Lord. None of them asked, who are you? They knew in that context, a fire with breakfast. Yes, this is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to have those eyes to recognize the, the presence and the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ with us, among us in the routine and ordinary affairs of our life. You know, getting up in the morning, Moms, for you who are getting up early and you're getting the lunches ready and you're making breakfast for the kids, well, Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ did that for his disciples. He has sanctified that work. He is present in that work. And then the routine of your day-to-day life, you're going to work, you come home, gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ, with friends, with neighbors, playing, praying. The risen Lord Jesus Christ meets us there. He's present in that. He has glorified that. He has sanctified that. And so none of us asks in those very routine and ordinary parts of our day, who are you? We know it's the Lord. We know that he is with us. So John's gospel in this final account takes us to a very familiar place for the disciples. This is where they grew up, the Sea of Galilee, in and around Galilee. This is where they raised their families. This is where they had spent three years with Jesus in his ministry. And so the risen Lord Jesus meets them there where they're at. And so it is for you this morning. He meets you where you are in your day-to-day life. And he asks you, child, do you have anything? How are you doing? He's concerned for your needs. He's concerned for how you are. And then he invites us to come to him. And just as he made that breakfast for his disciples, and he said, come and have breakfast. Come and sit down. Eat with me. So he says to you, come to me. Find rest. Find refreshment. He said to them that morning, come and have breakfast. He says to us each morning, come and have breakfast. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has a particular care and concern for each one of us where we are. We thank you for this beautiful account of him preparing breakfast for his disciples. And Lord Jesus, we know that you are the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. And we remember the command of the same Peter. That we should cast our cares on you for you care for us. And let's just do that right now. It may even help to have your hands open 
Have your hands out and open and cast your cares before him, for he cares for you. And then we thank you for that invitation. You say, come to me, you who are weary, who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will give you refreshment. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that each morning we would wake up. Each daybreak is a reminder of that daybreak, that day. We greet you each morning. You are with us. Each morning you say to us, come and have breakfast. And even as we prayed, you were with us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. And even as we began this service with the invitation, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord Jesus, each morning would we taste and see that you are good, for we ask it in your name. Amen.